Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. I'm here today with two very special guests and friends of the firm, Matt Clifford and Alice Bentink of Entrepreneur First. Uh, guys, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. It's great to be here. So why don't we start first by way of introduction by defining what is Entrepreneur First? And, and Matt, you, you gave a talk on why uh, starting a tech company is the way you can have the biggest impact in society and you sort of try to reconcile your your technology interests with your effective altruism interests. Maybe you can give a, a bit of an introduction there too. Well, I'll, I'll let Alice uh, kick off with what uh, Entrepreneur First is and then I can, I can pick up that, that, that side of things. So Entrepreneur First is a talent investor. Um, and really this is a new category of investing, a new way of investing. Um, and I suppose one of the easiest ways to think about it is if you think about what happened when accelerators were created um, and there was this new idea of like, oh, wow, you can invest in companies before they even ready to take on a seed round when it's, you know, two founders and a laptop and they've maybe got a sort of idea and maybe a little bit of a tr- bit of traction. And I suppose the idea for EF came from that. Hang on a minute. There are a bunch of individuals out there who want to start companies who um, probably could be very good founders, but actually don't have any way of testing that. Um, And so that's why we call this talent investing. So broadly, what we do at EF is we find the world's most talented potential founders before they have a team, often even before they have an idea. Uh, And we work with them to take them through that process of finding a co-founder, developing an idea and uh, and getting very early stage funding. Um, And I suppose being a talent investor we put our money where our mouth is and we invest in the individual itself so we give them a living stipend um, that then gives us an option to invest in the company they create but really we're funding a bunch of potential founders to see what they can create and putting a framework and program around that to give them the best chance of success yeah and i think you know every great company needs a, a why now you know like why is this the right time why hasn't it been done before and you're know, picking up on the you know the, the theme you hinted at I think one thing that struck us uh, when we quit our jobs, actually now quite a long time ago, eight years ago, to start Entrepreneur First, was that the world had really moved on in terms of like where impact was to be had, but careers largely had not. And I think it's probably worth saying, uh, given your audience, that um, this is probably a, maybe not Europe-centric point, but probably a non-Silicon Valley point, which is you know, part of the way we talk about what we do is that in Silicon Valley, it's the most natural thing in the world to express ambition starting a company. Almost nowhere else in the world is that true. And, you know, so if you walk around, you know, top universities, if you walk around careers fairs um, in Europe, in, in, in big parts of Asia, and, you know, ask smart, ambitious people, you know, what are you going to do? It's actually these, like, very familiar, I would call 20th century answers. It's about getting a job where you're going to climb a corporate ladder and make your boss look good. And, you know, in some ways, there's nothing wrong with that. But, you know, to me, that's a very archaic view of how to have impact in the world. And I think one thing that we find that our best founders uh, who come through the program love about the opportunity is that there is no ceiling on what they can do. The ceiling is really limited only by talent and ambition. And so what we were trying to build in, in Entrepreneur First was a, a new way of building a career, whereas ours says you can invest in someone before they have a company and give them access to this unbounded ambition, which even at a great firm like Goldman Sachs or, or Google is, is, is simply not possible. What do you say to people who say that there's too much, there's too many founders, everyone's trying to be a founder, there's too much capital in the system, we need somebody to actually, people to actually work at these companies and help help build them. What do you say to those those two critique things? I mean, I'd probably push back and say it depends on your geography. Um, so we're not we're not based in Silicon Valley, or we're HQ'd in London, but have offices in uh, Paris, Berlin, Bangalore, Singapore, and we're just opening in Toronto as well. What we see in these non-Silicon Valley ecosystems is that being a founder is not an aspirational career path. Um, It's still a very, very small percentage of individuals who even consider being a founder, let alone take that step. Um, And one of our beliefs is that the world is missing out on some of its best founders. You know, we believe talent is equally distributed, but opportunity or even aspiration to be a founder is not. 
so I suppose I'd challenge that and say that, you know, we, we often get asked, um, you know, why hasn't there been a, a Google of, of Europe or why hasn't there been a Facebook of Europe? And our answer very simply is that, you know, Mark Zuckerberg would probably be an incredible hedge fund guy making, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars each year um, and also would be highly respected by his peers for that career choice. And um, so a large part of what we're doing Entrepreneur First is really trying to change the way that the most ambitious, the most impactful individuals see their career aspirations. I think there's just something quite weird about this idea. And I think it comes from the history of, of startups and the sort of understandable um, pride that people have in, in the fact that entrepreneurs have been outsiders, that they've been, you know, the crazy ones, you know, like everyone knows the Steve Jobs speech. And, you know, the, certainly uh, there's a ton to respect about that. But it's kind of weird to be in an industry that um, sort of wants to put a natural ceiling on its size. And, and, you know, I think in any industry that we would evaluate as venture capitalists, we'd be looking at, you know, like what are the structural causes of change that, you know, might affect the market size? And, you know, I think when you look at are there too many founders, you just have to look at the structural causes of change. And, you know, at the very, very basic level, um, at risk of saying something utterly banal, you know, the internet has given uh, people an opportunity for scale, which means that the upside from selling a company is bigger than ever before. And things like, you know, the rise of cloud computing, uh, open source software have reduced the cost of starting a company. And, you know, in any other industry, if we were like, oh, wow, this is like massively more potentially lucrative and the costs uh, have fallen, it would be kind of weird not to expect that the demand to enter that industry would, would rise hugely. So um, we don't worry about this too much. And I suppose the only footnote I would add is we're all for talent aggregation. So we're not certainly not saying that everyone should be a founder. We're certainly not even saying everyone who joins Entrepreneur First should be a founder. In fact, I think one of the things that if you look at our alumni, they say their most value about being part of Entrepreneur First is the opportunity to hire their classmates, their cohort mates, whose ideas, you know, it turned out either weren't venture scale or, you know, they, they weren't fully... Uh, ready to spend 10 years of their life on. So actually, we think that by legitimizing and even valorizing the path of a founder, you do actually, in, a, in the second order effect is that you valorize the, the value of being, you know, first and second and third employee of a, a really exciting company. Yeah. I, I find that the people who are complaining about too much capital are often venture capitalists who want yeah. less competition. You know, founders are never complaining. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, Matt, you've written about you know, talent misallocation, uh, dis- disrupting ambition. Alice, you, you were just speaking to it. How do you most effectively you know, disrupt ambition or, or change the culture so that more people become founders? I mean, is it tangibly you just need to see a, a big winner? Or, or, or ha- what is the most effective uh, you know, lever that you could pull? I think there's something prior to even having winners. I mean, like it certainly will help. We, we find it helps even at the local level when you have you know, exits of any size. You, know, you, you start to build a, a virtuous cycle. But I think, it's, I think it's more than that. And I think it happens at the level of um, esteem and admiration and peer effects. So, you know, like why, you know, one thing that Alice and I feel we've been sort of apologizing for for sort of, you know, eight years is, is, is being management consultants at the start of our career. You know, we had a great experience at McKinsey. It's where we met. Which one of us wouldn't exist without that. But, you know, there's, there is a reason that uh, we went there. And it wasn't, frankly, that we had a burning desire to be management consultants. It's that the smartest, most ambitious people we knew you know, back at that time, I think we both applied for that job just before the crisis, were becoming management consultants. So that's what we felt we want to do. So, you know, it's going to take, you know, our oldest companies coming out of the current version of EF, that's sort of five years old, and, you know, they're just hitting their, like, Series Cs or whatever. So even those companies which look great, they're going to be a long time before we have the big win that makes people say, oh, yeah, there's definitely, you know, the time is now for talent investing. I think what's very positive for us is you don't need that um, for the cycle. The flywheel starts to turn. What you need is the smartest, most ambitious people in your class saying, oh, actually, I'm going to turn down the job at, at Goldman. I mean, one of the, when we were first starting, we spent a lot of time on campus at Cambridge and Oxford and Imperial in the UK speaking to people about their thoughts on their career paths. And one of the things that we heard so commonly was, yeah, you know, I, I probably would want to be a founder one day. And if I had a co-founder or an idea, 
And part of it is about raising that aspiration level, helping people realize it's possible. And then part of it is you do need a structure to help people go through that process of what does a good idea look like? It's not obvious. Um, ideation is a skill and that's something we really believe. And also, how do you find a co-founder in the most efficient and effective way possible? Um, finding a co-founder in a low entrepreneurial entrepreneurial ecosystem is very hard because you probably only have one maybe two friends of friends possibly to try out um, which means we see individuals trying out and then getting stuck in often very bad co-founding relationships that then makes it impossible for them to start a company so you need the inspiration but then you do also need um, to, to take on some of these kind of structural challenges yeah. What do you say to the critique that, you know, some people say that founders are determined re- rebels who don't, you don't need this structure, don't, don't need this help. And, and the ones who do are adversely selecting. What, what do you say to, to, to these tropes? I mean, I, I sort of have a facetious answer and then a serious answer. You know, the facetious answer is ev- every profession in history has like had this sort of golden, golden age ideal of the pre mainstream, you know, phase of it like oh wasn't it great when all knights were chivalrous and you know like oh yeah it was awesome and you know wasn't it great you know like i imagine that you know witch doctors and shamans were really against medical school anyway i'm, I'm sort of joking but i think there's something serious in this in that like i feel our industry needs to let go of the like um mythologization of what it means to be a founder and like yeah we're not trying to take away the reality of risk we're not trying to take away the reality of the need for extraordinary determination and resilience but I think we sometimes, as you know, as an industry, can kid ourselves that these are like totally unique to being a founder. And actually, you know, these skill sets are, are things that actually we would want to see in you know many high impact professions. So that's the position. I mean, I, I think the serious answer is: look, I think I think there are certain types of companies for which the entrepreneur first model probably doesn't work precisely because you do experience that selection. And you know, for that reason, we've made like. I hope very thoughtful choices about where we play and how we play. So Alice already touched on what we think is the single most important thing about uh, Entrepreneur First, which is you are joining a pre-filtered, highly curated community of people that meet a very high bar uh, around skill, around character, around ambition. Now, I think that, you know, for example, if someone wanted to build a company selling shoes, who's online, that could be a great company. It could even be a venture-backable company. I think we'd be pretty skeptical about someone who needed to come to EF to do that. And and I think the main reason is it's somewhat implausible to me that the the kind of core barriers to starting that company are about a lack of talent, you know, kind of in your network. You know, the cost of building a prototype is very low and, you know, you you don't need a, you know, a world-class technologist to build that product. Now, you need lots of other world-class skills down the line, but... In a way, I would imagine that the ideal CEO for that company ought to be able to find, you know, a fantastic uh, co-founder in their network. I think a lot of the companies that, that we help to build at Entrepreneur First, you know, have a, a sort of deeper technical angle. It's like really requires a perfect match, not only between a great CEO and a great CTO, but crucially between a great CEO and a great CTO who are very unlikely to have met organically. And again, that that might not be true in Silicon Valley because of the density of the network. Certainly true in London, in Singapore, and in, in our other markets. So, for example, um, you know, if you if you look at you know some of our companies that were pretty early in the sort of applied machine learning wave, you know, four or five years ago, they were you know, a combination of a you know a CEO that had uh, got really savvy about the space and a CTO who you know had one of the was one of the few people at the time with a really you know, kind of strong background in deep learning. Those people were not necessarily going to meet each other because one perhaps had a very industry focus and one had a deep technical focus. So we really believe that, you know, adverse selection kicks in when the more obvious way to build that company is that, you know, people, those people ought to know each other. We specialize in companies where actually the lack of density of networks outside Silicon Valley means that the right kind of founding pair probably don't know each other. Let's talk about ideation. And another trope is that people should, you know, be, passionate about what they're doing or they should you know vcs like people who uh who can't sleep because of uh, because of an idea for for many years but why is that wrong or why can't you assign people ideas and then let's talk about what you've learned about uh how, how to do ideation well with something not obvious in, in that realm 
Sure. So I don't disagree with anything that's said there in terms of founders need to have a deep connection with their idea. They need to be deeply passionate about what they're doing. I think the challenge that we see, particularly in these um, ecosystems where there isn't a kind of deep history of entrepreneurial culture, is that it's very hard for individuals to assess whether they're developing a good idea or not. So if you think if you're in Silicon Valley, you get the opportunity to bounce your idea of experienced startup experts, if you like, whether it be somebody who's built a startup, somebody who's been a mentor, somebody who's been an angel investor, and get that very, very quick feedback loop. I suppose one of the things that really surprised us when we first started EF was we were working uh, and we were finding these incredible individuals who were high ambition, um, high impact individuals, but the ideas and the kind of ideas that they wanted to work on didn't meet um, their potential. And so largely what we were saying, we actually had a, a, a um, marketing slogan for a while, which was don't build a dating app because we would have these, uh, you know, machine learning PhDs coming out of Imperial or Oxford and they all wanted to solve a problem they experienced on a daily basis, which was dating and build a dating app. The way that we've sort of flipped that on its head, and particularly because we work um, with a lot of deeply technical individuals, is to say, what is the problem that you have a competitive advantage in solving? Um, so when you look back at the experience that you've developed over the last, you know, how many years in academia, how many years in whatever industry you've worked in, where do you have an advantage in solving a particular problem? Um, and what we found, we call this edge, you know, using your, your edge to develop an idea. What we found is it's moved us away from ideas that were in very, very crowded categories, whether it be dating or food delivery or whatever the next Airbnb or Uber-esque idea is, to really solving kind of big, globally important uh, problems. Um, Often in the enterprise space, so a lot of our companies are B2B facing, um, but really leveraging the expertise of the founders, you know, so... Do they use their passion? We actually don't use the P word. We don't talk about passion because typically if you ask someone about their passion, they'll talk about something they've got a very light knowledge of that's often a hobby. Um, We actually get people to say, okay, well, what have you dedicated the last eight, 10 years of your life to? And how can you leverage that to be an expert in your space and to use that as the base for for developing an idea? Imagine Sequoia or Benchmark or some venture firm were sitting with your, uh, your fellows and helping them come up with ideas. How might traditional venture think about ideas differently than, than, than you guys might think about the idea, ideation process? I, I don't think it's sort of wildly different, actually. I mean, I, I, think it, I think it's just weird at the start because people are iterating through both ideas and teams at great pace. And, you know, honestly, one of the, you know, that first three months when people are doing that, it's a relatively closed process. We, we actually wouldn't expose uh, people at that stage to um, investors and that's not because of any sort of, uh, you know, kind of nefarious motive. It's because, actually, I think we're so used to the idea that, you know, great founders have, you know, been thinking about this, you know, this, this one thing for, for a decade that, you know, if we don't pan match that, we, we, you know, we can be quite quick to dismiss it. I think what we look for is people who, over time, can hone their understanding of a problem. And one way that we use Edge, which is the idea you know, that Alice just mentioned, is we ask ourselves, when they do go to that first investor meeting you know, with, you know, with a great VC, what is it in this person's background that will make them not only a plausible founder, but a deeply credible founder for this problem? And you know, that's one of the filters that we use as we evaluate is, does this story make sense? Or is it really vulnerable to the critique of, Hey, you two met three months ago and came up with this idea. Like, honestly, if if if, if entrepreneur first companies look like that six months later, then, then then we've sort of failed. Our job is to is not to give people ideas, but it's to help them find the thing where their sort of founder market fit stronger. I think that's a that's a really important point as well around how team building and ideation for us can't be disconnected. So, if I was to come up with an idea by myself, and it's based on my experience my skill set, what I can personally achieve. And that's largely what we see when people come to EF is they're, they're focused on what they can achieve. The amazing thing about Entrepreneur First is that because you're joining with 50 or 100 other individuals, it's actually about com- combinatorial innovation. It's, okay, you know, Eric, what could we achieve together and what could we build together would probably be very different compared to what Matt and I would end up building together. And so it's really increasing the kind of possibilities and number of ideas for that individual. Uh, do- depending on which co-founder they end up with. One, one anecdote 
uh, about that because it's top of mind. at breakfast with the with the founder today. Um, uh, one of the companies that we're very excited about is very early stage, about a year old company, a company called Fabric Nano. Um, they're building what looks to be a breakthrough way of immobilizing enzymes, which is like hugely, hugely important in like vast industrial applications that, that are highly lucrative. The CEO of that company, uh, amazing guy called, called Graham, his background was he worked at the Federal Reserve and he was in the PhD program at London Business School. Like he's like a monetary economist and his co-founder, um, fortunately, has a very, very deep background in enzyme uh, mobilization. Now, what's amazing is when you speak to these two people about why they ended up building the, the business that they did, what you never hear and what, you know, like what is not true is that um, Ferdy, the CTO, had this great idea and, you know, kind of grand doctor on it. What is amazing is even when the background's that disparate, it's actually the, almost like the ability to analogize, the ability to kind of co-create across different backgrounds that create something amazing. And so when we talk about edge, that is not meant to be a, uh, you know, a limitation or a hard stop on, on what people should do. It's, also, it's, it's really meant it's to be a starting point. It's a starting point, exactly. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I think the best founders on our pro- program almost always end up, A, to, to use, as I said, the P word, becoming very passionate uh, about uh, a topic, but also sort of just end up working on something they could have never imagined uh, right at the beginning. Totally. What separates people who end up starting companies out of EF uh, and lasting versus ones that either start and, and flame out or ones that don't even get one off the ground? And how have you honed your sort of talent evaluation uh, o- o- over time in terms of what the qualities you're looking for? What have you learned about, about that or anti-qualities? Oh, I mean, I think we could do an hour on this by itself. Um, so as we're start, starting from how we, how we kind of look for talent and um, where we dig these people out of and what we look for. So you can apply to EF. That's definitely one route. Um, but we actually spend a lot of time reaching out and sourcing the people that we want to apply to EF directly. We know that the most talented individuals in the world will have a bucket load of other options um, and many of them won't be considering entrepreneurship. And so we do have a pretty big internal talent team whose job is to find and convert these individuals. We're looking for founder potential, so we don't always get it right and we don't expect that everyone in our cohort should automatically convert to being a founder. And we see that as kind of taking appropriate risks. We should be experimenting with different kinds of individuals and different kinds of backgrounds. Because when it comes to actually evaluating the kind of people that we're looking for, there are two things we look for, um, ability and behavior. And really what we're looking at is their ability and behavior compared to their peers. So we're interested in their trajectory. And ability, you know, we want smart people, we want skilled people, um, particularly if we're looking for for technically skilled people. But I think what gets really interesting is on behavior. Um, And one of the uh, fascinating things that we have to do is, you know, if you've got an 18-year-old who hasn't been to university applying to Entrepreneur First, and you've got somebody who's 38, 40, also applying to EF, how do you make sure that you are um, effectively evaluating them rather than evaluating them against each other? And this is where this idea of taking their experience, comparing it to what we believe their peer group could or should have done. Um, it means that as the 38-year-old, it's probably much, much harder to get into the F because if you look at what the world's kind of top 1% of 38-year-olds have achieved or maybe 40, 45-year-olds, you know, you could be running a country or running a 10,000-person company. But this idea of we want to know what, we want to see your trajectory, how that compares to your peers, um, and we want to see that you're basically in the kind of top 5 or 10% of what your peers could have achieved is one of our main uh, main indicators. So we're looking for your um, ability to challenge convention, we're looking for your drive to achieve, we're looking for your ability to show leadership and followership at a very early stage in your career. And largely, one of the interesting things we find is that some of the best entrepreneurs on our um, program are those that have a very spiky profile. So they might actually be very, very strong on one or two of these things, and really pretty crap on a bunch of other ones. Um, these kind of spiky profiles uh, seem to seem to perform very, very well. I think this is really important because, um, you know, my guess is most of your US audience won't have heard of Entrepreneur First, but, you know, I'd say our brand in the UK is, you know, we are very fortunate to get some of the very, very top uh, academic minds in the country. Mm-hmm. You know, like the last cohort, we had a woman who's like co-authored papers with Stephen Hawking and like, it's like not totally unusual at EF, that sort of thing. But I think one thing that's probably a bit of a myth is that that's all we do. And, and actually, I think that framework that 
Alice laid out is really important because it allows us both to find the Stephen Hawking co-author, but also to find the sort of 19-year-old high school dropout who's self-taught. And, you know, I think early on probably we were a little bit too prescriptive and, and maybe a little bit too sort of dependent on evaluating badges rather than, than behaviours. And, you know, it's all credit to Alice, really. I think sort of we've over time honed that, that framework of how you separate those two things out. And I think that's made much more effective talent investments. I think it's hard in the European Asian ecosystems where the VC world is still a little bit more nascent compared to Silicon Valley, where I think there is still a VC bias here for more experienced founders um, and founders with badges often do pretty well. Uh, and I suppose we're, VCs aren't our customer. We're not producing startups for investment by uh, downstream investors. For us, it's really about unearthing talent that, that wouldn't be doing this otherwise. The, you, you mentioned the, the idea by which you don't want companies to look like they were formed three months ago you know, in, in this factory. W- what does that mean? Like what's, what's the, the biggest lever by which you can influence that? I think in a, in a way it's less uh, something we can influence and more I think it's an emergent characteristic of, of, of the combination of the founders as a co-founding pair and the idea they choose to work on. And, in, and I think the observable layer of this is the speed of learning. So I think what separates that, you know, like in, in a way when people say, oh, you know, we want to see a team that's known each other for a long time and that's been thinking about an idea for a long time, that's a proxy for a lot of, I think, variable, you know, latent variables that are sort of more important than, than, than that descriptor, which is you want people that have like a deep understanding of the pain point of the customer and have like really thought hard, you know, to, to use those sticks and phrase, you know, about the idea maze that the that they're walking through and you want obviously a robustness around the relationship you don't want these teams to collapse so you know like we have a bunch of ways of measuring that but you know i think this idea of like what is the pace of learning like how much can uh, a new team surprise you on the depth they've managed to get to and understanding it from relative to last week and i think that's the that's a really important thing is like um a word we haven't used yet i think but is like absolutely core to the f process is urgency EF is really short. People have 14 weeks between joining and us deciding whether or not, you know, we think there's, there's something there that we should further invest in. And so I'll butcher the exact stat, but it's something like 80% of the companies we fund form in the first couple of weeks. And, and I think that's not just because they have more time. I think it's because it like reveals a mindset around urgency. And so, you know, one of the things that we evaluate is, you know, how productive is this team relative to, to their ambition and you know we're looking for people that set themselves extremely high bars uh, and constantly exceed them and, and I think what's interesting is if you do that consistently with the same methodology over a long period of time the amount of data that you have after 14 weeks vastly exceeds I believe uh, you know we, we talk about this a lot you know kind of the amount of data that a CVC has when they have to make that decision you know I think um, we're very struck by the I think it was recently that first round capital published that data point that you know the compression of time between term sheet and offer that's happened at seed again i think they said something like you know when they got into business it was like 90 days between first meeting and term sheet now it's nine you know i think honestly that would freak us out um you know we, we get 100 days working really closely and collaboratively with these founders and you know that gives us a whole bunch of data points. So, you know, I think the original way you phrased the question was what separates people that succeed from those that don't? A lot of it's just that continuous, uh, steep trajectory of learning and productivity that you can observe over a 100-day period. Yeah. I'm just thinking about the kind of solidity of the team's things they're very new. One of the big questions, and maybe that's too polite a phrase because it was more that we were told this was really stupid when we first started, was... You, you can't throw individuals who don't know each other together and expect them to form a kind of decade-long partnership to build a company. Um, and that really was one of the big questions for us in terms of, I suppose, the technical risk we were taking was, can, can you actually make this work? I think one of the things that we're most proud of is that the teams that we're building are not just good teams, but they seem incredibly robust. And I think there's a really nice parallel here with the world of online dating, where building teams inorganically currently seems super weird. Um, you know, it's, it's maybe a bit embarrassing. And this is where online dating was, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Um, I met my husband online and I, eight years ago, and I remember taking him home to meet my parents and saying, well, can you just not mention that we met online because, you know, I don't want to look like a weirdo. The interesting thing now about online dating 
society is, A, it's becoming the default way to find a partner. So 40% of heterosexual couples now meet online. But even more interestingly, the robustness of those marriages is stronger than those that meet in other ways. So um, studies show that you're more likely to get through your first year of marriage if you meet online than if you meet through traditional organic ways. I suppose looking at the teams that we build through EF, because they go through a process where they are able to genuinely select the best person for them, where the switching costs are very, very low, they can. there's no reason to stay in a bad partnership because there are you know, 99 other people that they could go and co-found with tomorrow. They're also in a, in a kind of framework and with, it's surrounded by a bunch of cultural norms that encourage them to evaluate on a daily and weekly basis whether it's the right team for them. They have advisors that help them understand whether it is a good team or not, as, as Matt was saying, you know, looking at their productivity, looking at uh, how fast they can pro- progress. What it means is that you end up with teams that are much, much stronger than you would see elsewhere. And our team breakup rate post-seed is is kind of negligible. Um, whereas when you look at the market, it's something like what? Yeah, I, I did an informal survey of, you know, a group of European CPCs, and they said something like 20% of their portfolio lose a co-founder before Series A. I think we're like absolute max low teams, probably more like, you know, 10, 11% of, of, of our seed-funded um, teams you know, have a have a serious co-founder issue before Series A. So you know, it's like that. It's almost like a baptism of fire. Like if you've gone through Entrepreneur First, you still want to be together. It's pretty brutal. Even though we're constantly saying maybe you should break up, maybe yeah. you should break what up. What about this person? You, you probably really love each other. Um, yeah. and, uh, I think one of my proudest moments was when a local VC in London said, "Oh, I see you're taking teams now." I was like, ah, oh, cool. Okay. So even though they're speaking to two teams that are about four or five months old, they believe they've known each other for for decades. Yeah, well, it, it's it, to continue the analogy. It's, it's not just online dating. It's almost more like online online marriage uh, in the sense that you're putting together brick and, and, and having them really commit. And it's you know making me reflect in my dating. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, what qualities uh, are you looking for, or have, or have you learned to make a great co-founding relationship? What, what's the number one thing, or the few main things that people should optimize when when picking co-founders? Well, I, I think this is it's one of those things where. I think a mistake we made early on was to be to try to be too scientific about it. Mm-hmm. I remember very clearly uh, sitting down with Alice in the middle of the, not in the middle, before the second cohort started. We had a piece of paper. We drew out, we had much smaller cohorts then. We drew out the like 30-something people in the cohort. And we literally tried to pair them up on paper. We were like, oh, this person would be a really great fit with this person. And you know what? We were absolutely terrible at it. I don't think a single like proposed team that uh, we wrote on that paper actually uh, became a team or made it as a team. So instead, again, I would see it as like almost an emergent phenomenon that you you, you have to sort of measure the uh, output. So you know, we always we have a sort of a mantra internally, which is a good team is a productive team, and very very rarely is a bad team. Um, sorry, very very rarely is a productive team bad team so you know broadly we both ourselves evaluate teams based on how much they can get done together but also we tell co-founding pairs to evaluate whether this is the right team for them by whether they're getting stuff done i think you know like obviously that is a again it's a proxy it's a proxy for a lot of other things it's hard to be productive if there isn't respect you know it's hard to be productive if there isn't complementary uh skill it's hard to be productive if you know, you don't have some sort of shared uh, vision or at least a sort of sense of direction. But, you know, those those things are actually very hard to measure. Like, you know, do these people have a shared sense of direction? Well, you know, it's actually just much easier to say, how much have you got done? And, uh, you know, I think that proxies it reasonably well. This idea of switching costs is really important. I think the reason we see suboptimal co-founder pairings outside of EF is just because the switching costs of finding a new co-founder are way too high. By reducing that at EF, um, it enables people people to very, very quickly experiment with teams. And so there's an eight-week eight week active team building period, and typically people go through about two and a half teams during that time. Um, although interesting, as, as Matt said, most of the, the uh, best companies we, we create, so those that are most highly valued at Seed, for example, um, they form in the first two weeks. So people are very, very quick at sorting through the other 99 individuals uh, and finding the one that's most effective for them. Totally. Say more about uh, how you advise people to navigate the the idea maze. I think the the idea formation and, and more so the idea validation process. I think is still the biggest black box uh, for for startups in in terms of creating structure around it, uh, just because it's so disparate for for different different ideas. Yeah, I mean, I, I think in some ways, you know, we other than this sort of very initial process around starting with a hunch based on your edge and then 
uh, you know, kind of making, sort of thinking about in any given co-founding pair what the intersection of your edges is, if you like, you know, kind of what's the, the overlap in, in, in that. You know, in a way, I think our advice, uh, Entrepreneur First, is, is, is very typical of what uh, you would hear in general. You know, we're, we're all about customer validation, you know, like go talk to your customers, um, try and invalidate um, quickly, um, you know, this sort of thing. Now, I think what we're not saying is, you know, we, there's a danger in that, that you, you end up with like a very incremental, potentially unambitious process. So, you know, I think what we, what we want people to do is think about, uh, and again, to, to echo what Alice said earlier, a big challenge in emerging ecosystems is often that ambition is implicitly, sometimes even explicitly discouraged. And so, you know, I think a big part of what we do is try and amplify ambition. So what is the biggest thing this could be, not the smallest? And then, you know, just sort of find the customer that you're going to do this with. I think, as, as we said, you know, people have only got 14 weeks to do this, which is remarkable how in 14 weeks, not only do people come uh, to the, the pitch that they do for us with a team that seems, you know, super credible, an idea that seems really exciting, but very often they have a customer. And um, there's no substitute actually just engaging with the market. Do you have a framework for when to pivot? So we have a way of thinking about pivoting in that I think a lot of a lot of the kind of language around pivoting often leads to slightly weird behaviors with our founders. So what we talk about is linear ideation. So the idea is that you start with your edge. Your edge is your kind of um, initial point. It's a constraint. It's a way to have a conversation with potential co-founders. But then you're looking to linearly build on that edge through customer development. Um, when we talked about pivoting with our, our cohorts and with our founders, what we found was that they would typically see pivot as a way of, oh, I've hit a roadblock. Let me start on a fresh new idea. Um, and unfortunately with that is you are destroying all of the value, all of the learning, all of the networks that you've built um, by, by even making that progress in that initial idea. So what we challenge our founders to do instead is to go out, speak to customers, um, and then linearly build on what they've learned from that customer uh, to, to develop the idea. It does often mean that they end up in very different places from where they started, but you can almost trace back how they've gone through the idea maze and how they've tested that in different ways. Obviously, we have very compressed timelines, so uh, our founders don't necessarily have the luxury of being able to kind of throw things at the wall and see what sticks, and, and that does limit the kind of companies we create. We, we probably wouldn't create Snapchat. Um, there's kind of new forms of user or customer behavior. It, it, that, that probably isn't going to come out in uh, 14 weeks. But it does mean we have some amazing companies doing what we often call intentional innovation, solving a known problem, but in a totally new way with new technology or new business model. And um, that means that they can create space for themselves in the market. I mean, one of our favorite stories about this is a company called Accurix, which is based in the UK. It's a healthcare tech company. And they, um, while they were on Entrepreneur First, you know, they, they had a passion for healthcare. Uh, I know we don't use that word, but you know, in this case, you know, both Jake and Lawrence, you know, that, that they come in with that as, as as the area they wanted to focus on, and they developed a thesis around a really big problem, which is exactly what we asked them uh, to do or suggest that they do, and which was sort of antimicrobial resistance, you know, huge issue. Um, you know, some people think literally, sort of like top ten existential issue for humanity is antibiotic resistance, and so you know, they start to think about, start to ideate around how you could like make a real impact on this. One of their ideas was that a lot of the problem comes in prescribing. And so they start to mock up decision support software for general practitioners, family doctors to, to use in their prescribing. And again, using our like lens of productivity, they were super productive. They went around and spoke to hundreds and hundreds of doctors. And uh, broadly, the feedback they got was, well, it's great giving us this uh, fancy software, but this isn't the problem. The problem is that the patients don't do what I tell them to do. They don't take their pills. Um, they take too many of their pills. They drink too much, they, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, again, using Alice's like linear ideation framework, they didn't say, cool, well, you know, this didn't work. Let's build a dating app. They said, well, we, you know, what have we, what have we generated in terms of resource here? Generate a network of, of, of doctors who are genuinely engaged. We developed a deeper understanding of the problem. And so they pivoted actually after EF, but, um, uh, after we, we'd sort of worked with them to raise a, a, some pre-seed round. They pivoted into building a communication layer for uh, general practitioners to message their patients. 
in a way, super simple. It sort of sits on top of the existing uh, medical record system and, and just messages patients about their appointments, about uh, adherence to care packages, etc. Uh, today, that company is used by the majority of doctors in the UK. It's absolutely crazy. Um, you know, sort of over 50% of general practitioners use, use it. But, you know, I think they're probably never going to go back to decisions to support software. It was, it was linear ideation, but it took them to a place where they could grow, you know, kind of truly exponentially. And, um, we tell that story a lot at EF because I think it's, it's a great example of, you know, kind of both the value of persistence while also being extremely responsive to what the customer says. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that uh, when you are convincing people to join EF, often it's it's people who want to be founders, but maybe someday. And so you do risk it by helping them find co-founders, helping them find, uh, navigate idea mazes. What, what about the people who are unsure that they even want to be entrepreneurs in the first place? They, they might think, oh, an economist is how to have the biggest impact or a, a banker or a hedge fund person. Uh, do you end up convincing uh, some of those that uh, uh, you know entrepreneurship is, a, is, is the path for them? And if so, what do you say? I, I, th- I think there's a short term and a long term answer. So, like, we're absolutely not about convincing people to be founders. Um, I think that way a lot of pain would lie. You know, if, if someone, you know, to, to your point about like what sort of critiques might we get of the model, I think if we're like, if someone needs to be nudged to start something, uh, or nudged is the wrong word, someone needs to be you know, shoved pretty hard to start something, that it, then, then I think you do I remember better. stopping someone at a career fair years ago and saying, hey, have you ever thought about being a founder? And they're like, no, I've got a job at Microsoft. And I was like, okay, cool, fine. Maybe, maybe you're not proud. So, so you know, we're, we're, we're definitely not about that. But that said, I think one of the things that we love and we, we actually celebrate fairly often on our team Slack channel is the number of people that apply to Entrepreneur First literally five or six years after our initial contact. Mm-hmm. And actually often it is someone who met at a careers fair and they were going to go take their job at a big tech company. And, you know, it's, it's amazing. They say things like, oh, I remember speaking to, you know, your, your, your talent person, Zoe, and she, you know, she planted the seed and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I think, you know, if you go back to that very first thing that, that we talked about in this discussion about, like, the cultural dimension of entrepreneurship, like, we strongly believe that uh, entrepreneurship is culturally not genetically determined. So some of these people... You know, it would be ludicrous to say, oh, they, they, you know, they're not a founder. Mm-hmm. Um, it's they're not a, fa- a founder now and they're not a founder here. And I think that like long term working out of you know, things that, you know, you mentioned like role models, but also just of sort of planting a seed that, that, that grows. I think we've had some of our best successes with people we met mm-hmm. super early and it took a long time. I think one founder that we work with in Singapore and, um, the, one of the reasons he'd never thought about being a founder, despite having a, um, a PhD in, in a very niche form of battery technology, was the, the mythology around being a founder and what founders look like, and um, a lot of which does come from, um, uh, from the US, he didn't necessarily relate to. He didn't, he didn't see himself in those, in those role models um, or the kind of media uh, mythology, <laughs> mythologized role models. And so he... He was looking at himself and he was also looking at his peers and saying like, you know, this just doesn't happen in Singapore. This just isn't for me. Um, and so it was less that he was never planning to be a co, never planning on being a founder, but more that there were so many cultural restraints on how he thought about his career path that he just needed to have the conversation with someone. Um, and I mean, often we, the way that we position those conversations is around opportunity cost. And I think one of the biggest misconceptions we see is where people feel the opportunity cost of being a founder is really high. Um, and that might sound crazy if you're sat in Silicon Valley, but, um, you know, in somewhere like Singapore, being a failed founder is not necessarily seen as a, as a good thing to have on your CV. And I suppose what we've tried to reposition is the opportunity cost is more if you don't take that risk. So, you know, if you are Mark Zuckerberg, for example, and you don't build Facebook, think how big the opportunity cost for you is. Um, and so it's really trying to position uh, how those individuals should think about risk within whatever cultural norm they're in. And, you know, we've seen it change. Like in London, we've been here for eight years and we're really seeing that conversation now. It's very, very easy. Um, in fact, we probably have more challenges with what we call the startup fanboys um, and trying to, fanboys and girls, uh, and um, trying to sift through those to see actually who really does have the drive to achieve and the, the kind of outlier um, mindset to be a good founder. Um, but still, in you know, some of the more nascent ecosystems, um, this idea of, okay, well, how do we get people to really understand what opportunity cost as a founder means seems to be one of our most powerful tools. 
Yeah. You, you guys aren't in, you've expanded uh, across the world. You haven't expanded to Silicon Valley. Is, is this not an idea for Silicon Valley? And if not, why not? You know, we, we, we obviously looked at it. We're, um, we've, we've heard of Silicon Valley. <laughs> exactly. uh, um, uh, and actually, uh, you know, 80% of our uh, investors you know, are US-based, and many almost in Silicon Valley. I mean, I think if you, if you go back to, you know, the starting point, you know, what, what is the problem that we, that we think we're solving? I think you can sum it up in some ways by talking about network density. You know, it's really saying, like, there are lots of people out there who could be great founders. The single biggest thing holding them back is that they are not densely networked with potential co-founders who are as smart and ambitious as them, you know, advisors who have been through it before, and investors who can, you know, give them the capital to take to the next level. You know, our current assessment is that's just not true in Silicon Valley. People are densely networked in, in those ways. And it feels like there's lower hanging fruit um, than, than, you know, sort of trying to reinvent the wheel in, in, in Silicon Valley. Um, that, you know, I, I think the way we think about Silicon Valley is the, the path to scale um, for most of, you know, certainly many companies will go through the valley at some point in terms of being able to access the capital and expertise that, that you know, that the valley just has in, in extraordinary density. But, you know, I think when we, when we look at the opportunity for EF, it's in a way to be, it's to really transcend geography uh, for as being a factor in determining your life outcome. I mean, it's sort of crazy that geography is such a high order bit in determining what happens to you. You know, like if you're born in Mongolia and you're the like smartest kid in Mongolia, you you, you just really genuinely don't have the same opportunities. And so, you know, I think our view is that there's probably more value for EF, both in terms of our mission, but also economically in being the uh, you know the aggregation point for amazing people outside Silicon Valley, and, and ultimately being a bridge into Silicon Valley at the right time. And you know what we what we see is that for our you know our best companies wherever they start, uh, the US always ends up being an important part of that journey. I'm curious what you guys think about uh, bottlenecks for founders and and ways that we can as an ecosystem encourage more founders in addition to the work uh, you're, you're already doing. So uh, some things, for example, structurally, you know, immigration, health care. Uh, but also I'm curious about this idea of founder diversification. A lot of people want to be venture capitalists. And I think it's because venture capitalists have a diversified portfolio, whereas founders go all in. And even as we see valuations rise, you know, that doesn't affect the risk of a founder. And so I'm, I'm curious if there are ways to change that via either founder pooling mechanisms or encourage everyone to also be an investor by giving them capital. Uh, what do you think about that idea specifically, founder diversification? Because uh, VCs hate that idea. And then w- what do you think about bottlenecks for founders more generally, structurally uh, or culturally? Maybe I can take the diversification house and take the bottlenecks. Um, I mean, this, this, is a, this is a super polarizing idea in our community. Um, I would say every cohort, I get an email from someone saying, hey, why don't we take a point of equity in every EF company's cap table and you, you know the rest. And look, I, some people love that idea. And, and I don't think it's fair to say it's like pure adverse selection. It's, it's, I would say it's probably mildly but a long way from perfectly correlated with sort of outcomes. Uh, the, you know, the, the people that end up with the larger outcomes tend to be people who wouldn't have opted into that at the beginning. Not exclusively, and I think that's important. Um, so we, we, we have not done anything directly on that. Um, we look at it every so often, but I think then there is just an adverse election question there. Uh, you know, arguably, we're in an interesting position to work on that in the however like talented you believe you are, the level of risk you're taking pre-company is very high. But you know, I think that's one thing. On the investment side, it's very interesting, and actually that is becoming much more of a thing. So, you know, we um, are very lucky to have some exit founders who've, you know, kind of made very significant amounts of money and we're very proud to have some of those as investors in EF and in our funds, but also kind of probably more importantly in EF companies. What's really cool is a sort of community-led initiative in London that's just getting started where uh, one of our founders said, well, can you help us form a syndicate, you know, easy to use, quick, um, where we can invest in, uh, EF cohort members. Now it's not quite the Silicon Valley level where these people are, you know, raising their own funds to invest in the EF companies. Although I hope and believe that will come, it's, it's definitely happening. I mean, I think a, a risk of 
trivializing the question, which I, I don't mean to do. I mean, I think EF in some ways tries to provide precede that diversification by one paying a stipend, which is not diversification, but it's a safety net. But, but, but two, crucially, providing an, an incredible menu of options for your next step if you don't make it. You know, like the number of EFers who've had like successful and even lucrative careers at EF companies that they did not found because they were part of the community is, is sort of significant and growing. And so, um, again, you still got all your eggs in that one basket. But when I think about the kind of risks that uh, people talk about to us during the program, it's actually as much about, we all know there's an element of luck in this. You know, like, and I don't just mean in the venture journey. I mean, even in EF, I mean, we, we, we try and make it as um, sort of talent-driven as possible. There's always an element of luck. But I think people do feel... I hope that, you know, the product that we've ended up creating actually takes a lot out of that and gives people a number of bites. I mean, it's not totally unusual to see a team that's going towards our investment committee break up because they'd actually rather join one of the other companies because they believe their opportunity there is going to be greater. And I think that is an important part of the de-risking mechanism that EF has. Um, I mean, just thinking more generally about bottlenecks, I mean, you already touched on visas, but when we look at our sites around the world, um, pretty much all of them, maybe bar Bangalore, are very immigrant driven. Um, So we still see that, you know, whether you're in the London office or the Berlin office or wherever it may be, uh, the majority of people in our cohorts are usually not of the nationality uh, of the country that we're in. So making sure that we can continue to talent aggregate in each of these sites for us, we believe is super important. Um, obviously, things in the UK are particularly interesting right now. Um, we're getting to grips with the new post-Brexit um, visa, visa rules, which in some ways may be very positive because it looks like we should be able to get better access to global talent, um, not just EU talent. But I suppose one of the big concerns for us is always about talent aggregation. You know, we need to get these individuals in the same place together. This kind of in-person element does really matter. Um, And so visas are a large part of that. And I think actually, if you want an optimistic take on that, I would say at least three of our jurisdictions are pretty openly competing on Mm. how you make visas available to elite technical talent. And actually, the UK is one of them. I mean, like, we... You know, Brexit definitely represents some challenges from a talent perspective. But, you know, one thing that's pretty exciting is the government has, you know, to briefly plug the UK, the government's removed the um, sort of cap on the number of what it calls exceptional talent visas that we give to scientists and technologists. That's pretty amazing. Um, France has a similar thing. Uh, we've always found the government of Singapore super supportive of um, sort of bringing in the right talent. So I think it's encouraging that governments around the world or at least starting to see this as a dimension of competition. I think just one other bottleneck, or one other group that we see a particular bottleneck for, is um, is women. Uh, our gender diversity is still, despite something we've worked on for the last eight years, is still not great. About 20-30% of each of our cohorts um, uh, is women. One of the big challenges we see is that, particularly because we go after a lot of technical women, the opportunity cost for women joining the cohort is often higher than their male peers. Because that talent group is so heavily competed over, they'll often have multiple competing offers from other big employers, you know, um, come and join the office in Mountain View or whatever it may be. And so we actually see that one of the bottlenecks in our own pipeline is just attrition of women before they even join um, due to other very lucrative cross offers. Basically, Alice is saying, pay women less so that we can have more. <laughs> Would you guys experiment with alternative investment uh, instruments uh, like ISAs or, or something else? I guess more broadly, l- l- to close, uh, talk about the future of EF. You guys can scale in any number of ways. You can go full stack and like YC, you know, have a growth initiative. You could be at you know, 50 locations. You could start a university, you know, that just goes even more upstream. It gets them earlier. Uh, how do you... How do it's you, like you read the death era. <laughs> How do you think about the future? Look, we, we, we have a very simple mission, which we're really um, proud resonates with a lot of people, which is, you know, our mission at EF is to transform the lives of the world's most impactful people, obviously through entrepreneurship. And, you know, really that means that we have to be really good on three dimensions. We need to be accessible to all the world's most ambitious people. We need to be attractive to them. We need to be doing something that they think is, is valuable. And we need to be really effective in, in how we help them. So when we think about the future of EF, we're really always thinking about those three dimensions. So, you know, I already talked about transcending geography. Uh, you know, I think 
one big question for us is, you know, you can think of EF as a series of products, if you like. The, the sort of unique innovation of EF was, was that first 14 weeks that, that we've talked about a lot. But it, you, one way of reframing that is that's one product for generating great options for, for talent and great options for investment. Then we're really excited, you know, over the medium run to, to sort of uh, experiment with, with other products that, that could have that impact for other groups of people, either younger people, for example. Um, EF used to focus on fresh graduates. It's now so typically people in their late 20s or potentially, you know, second-time entrepreneurs who may not want a fully structured program but do want to be you know, highly networked with, with, with amazing people. You know, we, we're very conscious that it's hard to separate out the product and the financing mechanism for this. I mean, you mentioned ISAs. It's not something that we do right now. We pay a stipend, uh, which, you know, we, you know, it's a big part of when we pitch LPs is, look, we want you to understand why we're going to put a non-trivial proportion of this fund to work in what looks like grants to people that may not build a business. And, you know, the, the, the sell to LPs is that's what allows us to access this, you know, kind of unique differentiated optionality. But, you know, I think, Clearly, there is a limit on how much you can uh, you can fund uh, in, in terms of like how high a monthly income you can provide. Frankly, the amount of money that we provide in London is probably enough to pay the rent and keep the lights on. And if you're in your sort of early twenties, it's probably fine. But you know, if you're you know, I think we're very conscious that if you're in your mid thirties and you've got a couple of kids, it doesn't seem like a lot of money at all. So I think we're interested in exploring other ways that we can make EF more accessible through better and different financing but you know i think the way we would think about it is you know we, we want it to be wherever you are in the world whoever you are ef has a product that allows you to you know to kind of maximize your impact and um, you know i think we're, we like to think we're just getting started I, mean, I think this is one of the key parts of seeing ourselves as a talent investor rather than a vc is that we're building a talent institution. Um, and if you look at the world's best talent institutions, these are often companies, if not companies, institutions that have been around for hundreds of years. Like if you think about universities, for example. Um, and really the most important thing that matters, the kind of key thing, is whether you aggregate the world's best talent or not. Um, and so I suppose whenever we think about the future, the lens that we're trying to, to look through is how do we make sure that we remain attractive to those individuals? How do we, as you've already brought up, um, make sure that we avoid adverse selection? Um, because I suppose we're, we're not in this for a quick win. We see this as a fundamental way to change the way that people see their careers, see change the way they see the, uh, that they can um, impact the world. Uh, and that's going to take some time. So yeah, I think we're very interested in all of these new models and we're currently thinking about, you know, what does version two for EF look like? Um, it's been an amazing sort of eight years. I think I've learned a huge amount, probably made a ton of mistakes, maybe too many mistakes, but we now have an amazing data set that shows us what is possible through this model and what could be possible through some of the things that Matt was talking about. Totally. And, and, and lastly, for, for the entrepreneurs out there, say a minute or two on uh, how they might think about EF relative to think about something like YC uh, for the aspiring entrepreneurs even uh, and, and the differences of, of, of the program because they sort of have a visual of YC in their mind, you know, dinner once a week at this demo day at the end. It, paint, paint a picture for, for, for aspiring entrepreneurs why, why EF is different and how it should be. So we always say, I mean, like we're huge fans of YC and, you know, I, I suppose one way that we think about our aspirations is to have as transformative uh, impact on the talent landscape as, as they've had on the uh, venture landscape. I mean, I think in a way, the, the way to think about the difference is very simple, which is like if you have a team and an idea and you're maybe, you know, a product, uh, you should go to YC. Like EF is, EF is uh, you are weirdly too late stage for, for entrepreneur first. If you are, you know, if you know that you are hugely uh, high potential, you know, if you think you have what it takes, but, you know, for whatever reason, you don't think that the right co-founder for you is in your network, then I, you know, I strongly believe Entrepreneur First is the best place in the world to find a co-founder. And, you know, like one way of thinking about it is that, you know, it's a six-month program on like YC, which is obviously close to three months. The first three months of Entrepreneur First, you know, just as Alice described, is all about this sort of, finding the right co-founder for you, you know, finding that person that you're willing to spend the next 10 years uh, of your life with building something huge. The second three-month segment, you know, I, I think I think we have a ton to add, but, you know, that is much more like an accelerator. That is really saying, like, cool, well, we funded you now as a team with an idea and a product, and let's go to the races. 
Let's figure out how to take this to market. Let's figure out what the right seed round for you is. So one of the one of the interesting things that we've seen is that we do sometimes take individuals who are who already have a co-founder or already have an idea, but the way that they use EF is to test whether that was the right decision for them. So I would say of the teams that join us, it's very, very rare that they are still working with the same individual eight weeks later, and they're very rare that they're working on the same idea. So it's almost, if you have a co-founder that you're not sure about, (laughs) um, or have only just met, and actually, um, even if you apply with a co-founder, you'll be selected as an individual. So we've had teams that have applied where we've only accepted one individual, um, but even if we accept both of you, our expected outcome would be that you leave EF with a different co-founder. Um, and I think that just shows the power of the model in terms of genuinely giving individuals choice about who is the best co-founder for them, what is the best idea for them, and that they just wouldn't get outside of EF. I think that's probably what, you know, even eight years in, you know, we're very lucky, we've had some great results, you know, we, you know our funds are looking uh, really good, but, you know, the thing that keeps us most excited is, you know, we really live the talent investing thing. We get to wake up in the morning and work with some of the world's most extraordinary people, and, you know, we hope play some role in, in, in sort of helping them realize the full potential for the impact they can have in the world. And it's kind of, um, I mean, it's such a cliche, but it's just an enormous, enormous privilege, really. Yeah. That's a perfect place to, to wrap. My guests today have been Matt Clifford and Alice Bentink of Entrepreneur First. We are huge fans of what you're doing. Uh, thank you both for, for coming on the podcast, guys. It's always a pleasure. Thanks so much for having us. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.